Philippians chapter number 4. I want us to begin in verse number 10 tonight. And we're going to look down through verse number 20. I'm going to speak to you on the topic of Jesus never fails. These are Paul's closing statement in his letter to the Philippians. And in this closing, these closing thoughts, he preaches about or teaches or writes about an unfailing Savior. I'm going to give you three headings tonight. Jesus never fails in his providence. Jesus never fails in his power, and then Jesus never fails in his promise. So let's notice those together. Let's read from verse 10 down through verse number 20. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communed with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but because I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all in abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, and odor of a sweet smell, and sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for time together tonight with our church family, lifting up burdens, singing praises, and now this time to study your word. We ask for your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in verse number 10. We notice that Paul writes about an unfailing Savior in regards to God's providence. Here in verse number 10, Paul is rejoicing that God led the Philippians to send help when he needed it. He says, but I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now and the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul was appreciative of the people's thoughtfulness and of God's working in his life. He's in a place of being able to do very little for himself. And so this church has taken very good care of him in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, we learn that they have already been involved in providing financial support for him. He alludes to that here in the reading we had tonight. And now they seem to have sent another gift, and they even sent Epaphroditus to be a helper to him as he's able to deliver uh, this letter for Paul back to the church. But I want you to not be mistaken tonight as we consider Paul's Thankfulness in regards to how God's providentially working in his life. Paul is not one to simply be thankful because a need was taken care of while he was in need. You know the old saying, a friend in need is a... Yeah, for sure. And, and there's certainly times where we all kind of have to exercise that type of friendship. But, but I want you to know about the Apostle Paul that he is someone who is thankful, period. He's made it clear that his joy comes from 
the Lord, not particularly people's actions or their lack thereof. In fact, right here in this letter, he even goes so far in the early part of the letter to say, some did things with poor motives, but the gospel was spread. The, the word abounded. And he said, praise the Lord for that. I'm going to praise the Lord in spite of their poor motives. So this was the apostle Paul. He makes it clear his joy comes from the Lord. So I would say in our regard, shame on us if we ever get to the place of only being thankful when a gift has been given to us or we've been helped in some way. We should always be thankful. But Paul rejoices here because the Lord is in control and he saw to his need through the church. No matter how advanced the world around us may get. Boy, it's advanced, isn't it? I mean, you're... Your smartphone figure things out for you ahead of time. The, the, we talked about the IRS a little bit this morning in Sunday school. The IRS is, is ahead of things sometimes and slow on other things. They're ahead of collecting and they're slow on paying. That seems to be the case. But the world around us is just very, very advanced. It's technological. It's, things just kind of seem like out of our control because they're so much in control of all of the advancements that we have. But no matter how advanced the world may get, I want us to always remember that it's God who is providentially in control of what's going on in our lives and what's going on in the world around us. Now, the word providence, we think about the doctrine of God's providence. It's from the Latin, the the prefix pro, P-R-O, means before, and then the finality of the word V-I-D-E-O, V-D-E-O, means to see. So God sees it beforehand. Now, often when we think of God seeing it beforehand, there's another doctrine that comes to our mind. What would that doctrine be? Foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. Now, there is a difference. Providence is not the same as God's foreknowledge. God knows, but he's also working to arrange circumstances and situations for the fulfilling of his purposes. That is, our, that is his providence. Now, this is a comfort. It is a comfort to know that we have an all-knowing God who has foreknowledge. This is a, this is a blessed doctrine in the Scriptures to comfort us. But, but there's just something about the knowing that God is actively working in our world, that God is actively working in our lives. This goes back to, we, we mentioned it a few weeks back in prayer, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, what an amazing thought it is that Human prayers can affect the sovereignty of God. But it's God's providence that has helped us come to that revelation. To know that we can pray and then God is working or God is at work. A good example of God's providence, probably the best example of God's providence in human terms, is Joseph's story in Genesis 37 through 50. So I'd like for us to read those chapters tonight. All right, some of you were paying attention and laughed. Some of you were like turning there. I'm not going to read to you Genesis 37 through 50, but I do want to summarize for you Genesis 37 through 50. Due to Joseph's interpretation of a dream, his brothers put him into a pit. They're envious. They're jealous. They feel like they're ahead of him in the the lineage, so he's wrong. Maybe they just feel like he's sinful. They're going to correct him. Whatever, however you need to make this in your head, they put their brother in a pit, right? He's from that pit then sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. In Potiphar's house, he's put in a predicament, and then he finds himself in prison. 
From prison, he's promoted by Pharaoh. That's a lot of P words. I did not alliterate it this well, but I'm going to go back and change my notes now, and I am going to alliterate it that well. And then he's, <laughs> he's promoted by Pharaoh after his interpretation of a dream. 20 years or so goes by, and he's rejoined with his family. And we would say this is providentially arranged by God. God saw, God knew, God was working. And this is evident in Joseph's life. Genesis 45.5 says, Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. How did Joseph come to that, that state of being toward his brothers who treated him this way? Well, he had experienced the providence of God, and he was able to see it after the fact, and this is what God did, so he's able to testify to that fact. And that's where we find Paul here in this passage. As he closes out his letter to the Philippians, he, he is speaking about Jesus who would never fail him, and one of the ways he's sure of this is the providence of God. And then probably Joseph's most famous verse is Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you thought it evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Paul knew this same providence in his own life. Romans eight twenty eight. he wrote, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. In this instance that we read here, the church at Philippi was concerned but they lacked opportunity to help. That's what the end of verse number 10 says there. He says, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked the opportunity. Well, I would say to us, church, we have the opportunity. Let's be careful to never lack the concern. That's an important take for us to have to be more like the Christians in Philippi in Paul's day. Paul experienced that Jesus never failed in his providence as the church took care of him right when he needed it. Someone has said, life is not a series of accidents, it is a series of, of appointments. And however you approach your life, accidents or appointments will, will be very well seen on your face and in your reactions to how things come in your life. Now certainly we all have bad days and we all have times where, boy, it just seems like a day full of accidents. But for the most part, as God's people, with God's word on the matter, trusting in God's providence, knowing we serve an unfailing Savior, we should see all the things that come into our life as appointed by God and no accident at all. Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. So Jesus never fails in his providence. Second, Jesus never fails in his power. In verse 11, Paul is quick to note that he is content in the state that he finds himself. He says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And you've you got to get into Paul's line of thinking here. And I think as a pastor who I'm, I'm constantly bombarded with benevolence of people, you guys are just kind and nice and friendly to me. You say nice things, you do nice things, you give nice things, and I'm appreciative of that. And probably I would say in, in this crowd, I probably experienced that more than any of the rest of you. So I think I can give you a line into Paul's thinking here. I have learned to be real careful what I say. Like when I first uh, became the pastor here, we drove a blue 99 Honda van with about 10 million miles on it. 
And I would use this as a sermon illustration pretty regularly. We called it Old Blue, and I would tell these stories about these things that happened or didn't happen. It was kind of like the life and times of Old Blue. And these were my sermon illustrations. Well, it didn't take long before the men on the board perceived this as a hint that the preacher wanted a new car, and they, they got some money together, and they gave it to me. And they said, it's not enough to buy a whole car, but this will probably give you a good down payment on a new car. It wasn't what I was after. But I took it and received the blessing. Praise the Lord for the blessing. The point being, Paul, I've learned to be careful what I say because you don't want it to seem like you're asking by regards of what you, you, you're, you're speaking of here. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, no, I'm not talking about my wants. I'm not speaking in respect of wants. He says, because I've learned in whatever state I am to be content there in that state. He's not thankful simply because this was something that he wanted. He said, I wanted nothing. Well, how could Paul live and want nothing? Because he learned to be content with anything. Shipwreck, beatings, imprisonment, jail food. He learned to be content with whatever came into his life because he found his joy in other things. I mean, think about it. That's a rough life Paul had. But he's getting to pen letters that become the Bible. I don't know exactly if Paul knew right on what was going on there, but I think he had a clue. I think the Bible writers knew a little bit about what they were doing here. But man, we look back on it now, and what a glorious life that was. It wasn't glamorous, but what a great usefulness to be used of God in such a way. Well, don't undermine how you're being used of God. You ladies who just had your Good News Club meeting, Who's to say the next great evangelist will not be born again through the Good News Clubs or the next mayor of our town or the next governor of our state or the next pastor of the, the, a Bible-blessed ministry around here? Maybe Tennessee someday will have its own John MacArthur. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're involved in, however God is patterning your life in His providence, learn to be content and learn to be used in the way that God is using you there. Do you lack contentment? Are your days filled with thoughts of what you don't have and what you could have? What you're not doing and what you could be doing? I think this is a plague upon many of us. Well, Paul is clear here that he's learned to just be content in any circumstance. And then when you find yourself learning to be content in any circumstance, you can be someone who is only ever thankful. You ever met that person? Well, they're just happy and glad and thankful about everything. I long, I long to be that way. Well, it begins with contentment. Verse number 12, Paul says that he has learned to adapt to a situation. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul is flexible. He's learned to abound and he's learned to be abased. In any place, with with anything, whether he's full, whether he's hungry, whether he has plenty or whether he's in need. Paul says, I've learned to adapt to my situation because I'm content with what what, what little that I have. And I can be flexible. Too often, as Christians, we we cannot adapt. We cannot be flexible in the situations. We're we're hard and we're rigid and we're matter-of-fact. Well, mentally, we must allow ourselves to accept the fact that we're going to face an array of situations in life. Now, there are for sure some situations that are going to knock you off of your feet. 
But for the most part, those should be few and far between. And situations should come at us in such a way that we can be God's ambassadors in the midst of those situations instead of being someone who needs to be picked up off of their pile there in the middle of that situation. But we're going to have to learn how to be adapted to anything, to be flexible no matter what comes. Times of plenty, times of little. Times of joy, times of sadness. Times of ease and times of struggle. Some of you who are married, your marriage vows, you said something along this way. In sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, till death do us part. And you've no newlyweds in here tonight, so you've been married long enough to understand exactly what that means. There are good times and there are bad times. Well, there's no difference in your marriage with Christ. He's the groom. The church is the bride. There's going to be times of sickness, but there's going to be times of health. There's going to be times of prosperity, but there's also going to be times where we lack. Becoming flexible, being able to adapt to our circumstance is a key thing. It's key to maintaining our ability to function no matter what comes. Paul has learned in his life, and he communicates it well here, that things ultimately do not matter. What matters is relationships. Relationships with Christ and relationships with others. Seeing this, Paul is able to avoid being preoccupied with food, being preoccupied with money, being preoccupied with other earthly concerns. He's thankful, he's content, he's flexible. In verse 13 then he says that his dependence upon the unfailing power of Christ is what allows him to be content and to adapt. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, currently in society, we get this verse backwards. We get it from a human perspective instead of a divine perspective. The divine perspective is, he's the vine, we're the branches. As long as we're attached to the vine, we can do everything the vine needs to do because we're attached. We, we want to do, do this opposite in our society and say, whatever it is my brain can think of to do, I can claim Philippians 4.13, and as long as I bless it with Christ, I can, I can do it. And it's not the right interpretation of this verse. This verse is about living dependent. Living dependent, Paul and you and I can do all things through Christ. All things that Christ gives us the strength to do. More than flexing his own spiritual muscles and spreading his wings to go out and do his own thing. Paul is expressing here his dependence upon God and the power of Christ to do anything within the will of God while being dependent upon God. Think about it. Where is Paul at the time of this writing? He's in prison. The best we can tell, he, he might have been in some sort of like house arrest in an apartment, but they would have chained him to a Roman soldier. Might have been two Roman soldiers involved there. So you answer me the question, could he do all things through Christ? All things. No, he could not. I know I'm the preacher who says all means all, and that's all that all means. Well, it is. But we have to leave in here the context of I can do all things while being dependent upon Christ. That's what he's saying there. So what can he do? Well, he can do whatever it is God wants him to do. So he could not run away. Now, if God wanted him to run away, from Peter's example, what would God have done? Send an angel down, loosed him from those chains, he put those guards to sleep, and he walked him right out the gate. I love that story. What's the little girl's name? They go over to the house and they're having prayer meeting for Peter. 
Rhoda, they go, and Rhoda says, hey, Peter's here. And they said, no, he's not. We're praying for him <laughs> to get out of church. Oh, he's right there. That's exactly right. That's right. According to his sovereign will. Yeah, this whole idea that you have to have enough faith for God to be able to answer your prayers, that's spiritual malpractice. I never have enough prayer for faith for God to answer my prayers. The disciples asked for that in our text this morning. They said, Lord, increase our faith. He said, no, you've missed the point. The point is for you in the faith to be more forgiving, not for me to increase your faith so that you can do something you don't want to do. Amen. Pretty good, bro. Lucky we tag team this thing. Paul could not do all things, according to Philippians 4.13, but he could do everything God intended him to do. And we know that to be true because he writes half the Bible. I mean, he writes a good portion of the doctrine that we know and love as the church in this predicament. But if we apply it our way, that God's will is for me to only depend upon him when I can't do anything more on my own, and I need him to take me to the next level, well, what will we ever get done? Only the things we want to do, the temporal things. God's will is for you to live totally dependent upon him. His plan is for you to be only functional within the power that Christ has given you. There, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You can be thankful. You can be content. You can be flexible once you become dependent upon Christ. I think it's a unique observation. I'm giving you the Word of God, which is special revelation. But we also live in God's creation. We sing all creatures of our God and King tonight, which brings to our minds general revelation. Well, the point I'm making to you can be made in general revelation. All of nature depends upon inner resources. Trees send their roots down into the ground, and they use that to draw up the mineral and the resources that they need to keep themselves alive. Rivers. Rivers have their sources in the snow-capped mountains that melt away or in the springs that spring up from underneath the ground. Well, so it is for Christians. We draw our greatest strength not from outer things, but from inner things, from places that only God sees. So Paul says here, I know both how to be abased. And I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I tell you tonight, church, we will fail against the pressures of life if we're not drawing our strength from him and his unfailing power. Jesus never fails in his providence. Jesus never fails in his power. Paul realized, I can do all things through Christ, depending upon Christ. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said, it is not by trusting my own faithfulness, but by looking away to the faithful one. John 15 is the passage where we get the vine and the branches there. Branches bear the fruit, but but they on their own would never bear anything but death. So we get to be the fruit bearers, but only when we are attached to the vine. We're dependent upon Christ. He's the vine. We are the branches. The source, the strength, the power, it's all in the vine. A branch, a Christian, content and adapted to and dependent upon the vine, Jesus Christ can then in his unfailing power bring forth the fruit of his will. So Jesus never fails in his providence. Jesus never fails in his power. And then finally, Jesus never fails in his promise. 
God keeps his promises. This, this is verse 14 through 20. Paul is very thankful to those in Philippi who sent to assist with his need. And he talks about that in verses 14 through 18. Then in verse number 20, he gives glory to God for it there. So verse 20, he says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 14, he recalls the supply given to him through the church. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Verse 15, he remarks that they were the only church from their area, Macedonia, that gave support. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. In verse 17, he reminds them that all he was able to do because of their giving was put on their account in eternity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Did I do verse 16? Did I skip verse 16? I think I skipped verse 16, didn't I? I thought I did. I don't know how I managed that. Now, I did alliterate this on purpose, and I messed it up. So verse 14, he recalls. Verse 15, he remarks. Verse 16, he remembers that while he was in Thessalonica, they sent help two times. Not just one time, but two times. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again into my necessity. So he recalls, he remarks, he remembers. Verse 17, he reminds them. And then verse number 18, He speaks of how blessed he is because of them and of God's being pleased with them. He says, but I have all in abound. Now, that's a unique thing for him to say, isn't it? Humanly speaking, does Paul have all? He really doesn't. How can he say such a thing? Because he's content. (laughs) I I got whatever I need. And Paul lived in such a situation that should a new need arise that he wasn't prepared for ahead of time, he could trust that God through the churches was going to provide for that need. It's a wonderful thing to think about. I have all in a bound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus, the things which are sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Not only had they sent multiple gifts of help in the past, But now they had sent yet again as he is confined here in jail in Rome. And Paul says because of this, he says, you guys have made me full. More importantly, he remarks to them how their giving was pleasing to God. And he alludes here to the Old Testament sacrifice. When he talks about their sacrifice having a sweet-smelling odor, he says, these things were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Just like the... Old Testament sacrifices would be a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God. And surely we understand God is a spirit. God doesn't have nostrils. But he manifests himself to our minds to help us to understand him in these ways. But, But you get the idea. I walked in the house this afternoon, and there was a pot roast in the crock pot with potatoes and onions and carrots. Mm. It was a a sweet-smelling sacrifice from a wife to her husband. And I praise the Lord for it as I chomped away on it. I'm going to eat some more tonight when I get to the house. I'll probably go to bed with a bellyache because I overdo it. And I'll get up the next morning and say, I'm going to eat better today. But tonight, I'm going to feast on this sweet-smelling savor. Paul talks about that Old Testament sacrifice in regards to how this church had been a blessing to him. And he said, it's on your account. 
It's God-honored. It was God-ordained, and it was God-honored, and you've, you've pleased the Lord by taking care of me. He doesn't see this gift as just coming from Philippi. He sees it as God's supply from heaven for him. God just sent it through the church in Philippi. Verse 13, Paul knows Jesus will not fail him. I can do all things through Christ. Paul had experienced Christ's promise. He, he asked Jesus at one point to remove his ailment. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, do you remember this? He said a messenger from Satan was buffeting him. He asked God three times to remove this thorn in the flesh, this hindrance. What did Christ say to him? Verse 9 and 10, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Ah, love those words. God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. And he said, you don't need me to do that. That's what the Lord's saying there. You don't need me to remove the thorn because, because you have grace. My grace is enough. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Praise the Lord. How was Paul so mightily used of God? Was it because he was so well-educated? Was it because of his great upbringing? Was it because of his successful life prior to ministry? It was none of those things. It was because he was dependent upon God's providence. It was because he was sure of God's power. It was because he trusted in God's promises. It was because he had come to live and know and realize that if I'll just be weak and let him do the work, he's the, branch, he's the vine, I'll just be the little branch here that gets all of its nutrients and all of its living off of that vine. I'll just stay attached. Then he'll be strong. His grace is sufficient. He experienced Christ's promise there when he asked for his ailment to be removed. He experienced Christ's promise when he was forsaken by others. In 2 Timothy 4.17, he wrote this, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that my preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So Paul knows that his path is within Christ's providence. He knows that his potential comes from Christ's power. And he shows that his provision is according to Christ's promise. Well, what a great way to live your life. Don't you want to be like Paul? How can we be more like Paul? Be like Christ. <laughs> That's Paul's secret. His... Amen. His path was within God's providence. Are you living in the will of God? His potential came from Christ's power. Are you doing all things depending on Christ? Or are you trying to just do all things and hoping Christ will stimulate it? His provision was according to Christ's promise. Are you asking God to provide things that he's promised for you in life? Are you trying to get things out of God that he never intended for you to have? In verse 18 and 19, Paul is sure to clarify that while the Philippians met his need, Christ would meet their needs. I have all that abound. And then verse 19, he says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is God's unfailing promise. 
Psalm 23, verse 1. You know it. The Lord is my shepherd. You're not going to want. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And Habakkuk. I've given you enough proof text, but Habakkuk doesn't get enough attention. So let me give you Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Although the fig tree shall not blossom... Neither shall the fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. It's a different take on the same thing, but it's still a part of God's promises. The vegetation fails, the herds fail, but I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord because he's the God of my salvation. He's my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon my high places. I would remind you, church, God has not promised to supply all of our greeds, but he will supply our need. When the child of God is in the will of God, serving for the glory of God, then he will have every need met. Hudson Taylor is quoted in often saying, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. When you're doing God's work in God's way for God's glory, you'll have God's supply. Jesus never fails in his providence. Jesus never fails in his power. Jesus never fails in his promises. Well, how can you and I experience this never-failing Christ like Paul has? Do we have to get chained up to a Cheatham County Sheriff deputy? Is this the way? Is this the path to it in our lives? Surely it's not. Well, for the Christian, according to verse number 10, we are to be appreciative. How can I experience an unfailing Christ? Number one, be appreciative. Paul rejoiced in their care of him. Number two, from verse 11, be content. Paul wasn't in want as he had learned to be content with what he had. So we can experience an unfailing Christ by being appreciative, being content. Number three, from verse number 12, by being adaptable. Paul had learned to live rich or poor, with a full stomach or hungry, having plenty or being in need. Then from verse number 13, be dependent. Be appreciative, be content, be adaptable, be dependent. This is like a Warren Wiersbe sermon, isn't it? He's all about the bees. Be this and be that. Paul had learned his true source of power. Being dependent upon Christ was like a branch on a vine. Letting Christ lead, feed, guide, and provide. Are you living your life that way? Is Christ leading you, feeding you, guiding you, providing for you? For the Christian to experience like Paul that Jesus never fails. This is what we must be. Appreciative content, adaptable, and dependent. And for those who are not Christians, if you'd like to have a taste of an unfailing Christ, you must be born again. Let's pray together.